Welcome to all of our listeners to Tales from the Uterus. Today we will be discussing a dialogue on disparities. I want to start by sharing a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for U.S. listeners only and is intended to be listened to as it was originally produced by Pfizer and Sumitomo Pharma America. This podcast has been paid for by Pfizer and Sumitomo Pharma America, and the participants have been paid by Pfizer and Sumitomo Pharma America for their time. The information provided is for educational purposes only and is not intended to replace discussions with the healthcare provider. This promotional activity is not certified for continuing medical education. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's hop into today's topic. We're going to dive into uh, one of the more common uh, disparities in reproductive health, which is that of uterine fibroids. So we know that uterine fibroids disproportionately affect black women at a higher rate, but I do want to talk about what uterine fibroids actually are. So this makes me think of our episode two, where we discuss uterine fibroids and other period issues. Um, So feel free to check that out if you have a chance. Uterine fibroids are essentially benign growths that come from the muscle layer of the uterus. The symptoms and severity of uterine fibroids are dictated almost primarily by their location and size. We do know that the prevalence of uterine fibroids in all women is typically pretty high, around 70%, but can be as high as 80 to 90% in black women specifically. It's also important to highlight that the symptoms that black women experience tend to be more severe than their white counterparts. This can include anemia, longer and heavier periods, and significant pelvic pain. I'd like to welcome my first guest, our guest patient, Tanika Gray Balbrin. Tanika is an award-winning journalist, educator, and nonprofit founder with a passion for women's health. After her personal struggles with uterine fibroids, including two myomectomies, Tanika's passion for women's health inspired her to create the White Dress Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support for women suffering from fibroids and to raise awareness for fibroid education. For everyone listening, a myomectomy is the surgical removal of fibroids, and so that can be done with a variety of of approaches, but ultimately it's leaving the uterus in place but taking away the fibroids. Tanika, welcome. How are you today? Hi, Dr. Sharis. It's so great to be here with you. It's so great to have this discussion. Um, Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I always love hearing your stories uh, and hearing just your perspective on the topic of uterine fibroids. So Tanika, can you share your story and experience with uterine fibroids, specifically highlighting what symptoms you experienced and how those symptoms impacted your daily life? Yeah, you know, when I hear that question, I'm always <laughs> thinking to myself, like, Dr. Shards, how much time do you have? Um, because it's been a really, really long journey for me. And for so many women who are managing life with fibroids, I started my journey with fibroids really during my teenage years. Um, I've always known myself to have a very heavy period, always bloated. Um, always had to use the restroom. I was always that girl in college that, you know, 
we can't go on a road trip with Tanika because I'm going to be the one who has to stop at every rest stop because I just had to always use the bathroom that way. And I really just uh, built my life around having periods this way. And I never really thought about it. I just thought that this was normal. I thought that this was a woman's plight. Um, you know, since I got the gift of having a uterus, then this this is this was just my journey. And um, I really just went on with life, knowing that my periods were out of control this way, knowing that I was having so much pain. I've always been uh, pretty slim. But I've always, always had a protruding belly. So just imagine going through middle school with that and going through high school with that and going through college with that. You know, just the stares, the looks, people always thinking you're pregnant. So those those were the majority of my symptoms. One one other symptom that I failed to mention was my grave anemia, which is low iron in your blood. By the time I was about 24, I had already had probably about five blood transfusions due to my severe anemia. So I just I just kind of went on with life, though, all through college, um, all through high school. I was just career focused and just knew that I had to manage life with a fibroids. I knew that I could never wear any white clothing. Uh, hence the name for our organization. I knew that I always had to pack a bag of clothes with me, extra underwear, leggings, like it was just my life. I always say that, you know, I've never bought a car with cloth seats because I know that you can get stains out of leather seats easier. And, you know, you're a poor college student, Leather seats is always the upgrade. Um, so it wasn't always something I could necessarily afford. But for me, it was a way of life. It was something that was a necessity. It was something that I had to have. And it wasn't until about, I think, age 25, after these multiple blood transfusions, a physician said to me, have you ever heard of uterine fibroids? And I said, the thing my mom has? Like the thing that my mom had, quote unquote, the surgery for. And I'm like, no, there's no way that I could have that same thing. And I remember my mom sharing stories with me. And I think just for so many people in our community and so many people who are managing life with fibroids, you don't think that it's it's. It's not the symptoms aren't abnormal, right? You just tend to feel like this is a period. I'm a woman. This is what's happening. So for me, it was very alarming when I heard any type of diagnosis um, because I was just thinking that this was normal life. So fast forward to I got married, went to a doctor to talk about our options for children. And he said to me on the very first doctor's visit, he said to me that I needed to forget children, have a hysterectomy because my uterus was way too compromised. And I remember my husband and I walking out into the, the parking deck and literally I fell apart in the parking deck, crying, just so disappointed because you feel like you live life the way you're you're told to live it or you're supposed to live it or the way that will give you the most success. So in, in my household, it was you study, 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 
You get a great education. You go to a great school. You get a great job. You meet a great guy. You get married and you have children. Now, I'm not necessarily vouching for that way of life or that those thoughts, but it was the way I was taught. So when you think about doing all of those things appropriately, let's say, right, and you hear someone tell you that it doesn't matter that you've done any of that right, it's not enough. It was extremely devastating. So I hope that that kind of summed it up. Oh, absolutely. That answered the question uh, beautifully and, and, you know, heartbreakingly as well. So pretty much your symptoms affected every aspect of your life from the type of car <laughs> interior you would potentially be willing to, to get to, you know, your hopes for a family. Now, you know, one of the things I do want to touch on is the frequency with which black women sometimes delay seeking treatment. And a number of the reasons in which this occurs or for which this occurs. I think you touched on some of them. The idea of the ways in which sometimes we normalize the abnormal because our frame of reference would be our, our mothers or sisters or folks around us who may be dealing with the very same thing. Uh, and that's just kind of the nature of a health disparity where it looks one way for someone else. And if you're surrounded by people that look like you, you may all be suffering in a similar way. But I do want to, to delve a little bit deeper into the process by which you sought treatment and diagnosis. It sounds like you'd gotten some blood transfusions and things. So what were your interactions with healthcare providers? When did you say, there? I need a diagnosis, I need treatment here? And were you taken seriously? I often think of where I am in my life and, and the resources that I have, the access that I have. And I think about the experiences that I had, even with the access and the resources. And I still experienced um, a level of dismissal, a level of uh, uh, disbelief or, or physicians not believing that my pain was as bad as I said it was. I remember during those years before being diagnosed with fibroids, doctors would say to me, I, I just, I, we can't figure out why you're bleeding. To the point that one of the first treatment options that I received for my heavy bleeding, which which now I know was not a, a, a treatment option I should have gotten, was a DNC because they could not understand why I was bleeding this way. So uh, for everyone listening, a DNC is a dilation and curatage. And so it's a surgical procedure where we try to remove some of that uterine lining, typically to improve symptoms or to even get a diagnosis. Sorry to interrupt, Tanika. No problem. Thank you for that definition. So when I think about, like I said, having the access that I have, having the resources that I have, having the education that I have, and still feeling like I'm being dismissed, feeling like I'm given treatment options that that if there was some more investigation that had happened, maybe that physician wouldn't have given me that particular, actually, you know what, I'm just going <laughs> to be transparent, that, you know, I don't, I don't think there was that much investment in me as a patient, right? Let's just be real about it. So I don't even want to give the credit because I, I, I want to speak to the women that experience that, right? And there there is just not enough credit given to our lived experiences. And I, I have a, a grave issue with that. So with all of that, 
I had just that terrible experience with the DNC when I finally got diagnosed. Um, and then that, that physician telling me that a hysterectomy was my best option on the first visit. It, it was all so much, but what I've learned through all of that is that even if a physician is not your best advocate, you have to be your best advocate, but we have to think about how we are best serving ourselves as our own patient advocate. You know, I think we sometimes put in context or paint this picture that dismissal, disbelief, ignoring, all of those things are things of the past, right? And those are things that have happened uh, to our ancestors and to our grandmothers. But the fact is that there is still limited access to healthcare for Black women, in not just the management of uterine fibroids, but in many cases. And still today, in 2023, there are racial biases within the healthcare system that lead to uh, inadequate diagnosis or inadequate treatment options for Black women. Absolutely. So we still got to talk about that because it's still happening today. And we sometimes uh, put these issues in like a historical context. Like, you know, I can't believe they did my grandmother like this, but I can't believe they did Tanika like this two years ago or a year ago, or I can't believe they did my best friend like this six months ago. So I think we always need to keep that at the forefront that this is still happening and have discussions like this that can call out how things need to change. Absolutely. That was so, so, so well stated. You know, you mentioned um, the, the differences in, across generations and some of the things that have remained the same. My next question is related to just like family dynamics. You know, we have been taught, a lot of us, that the doctor's always right and that you don't question authority. And that's something that has certainly been passed down from generation to generation, especially in black households where, you know, looking or appearing to be difficult or disruptive, all of these labels that we can be labeled unfairly, we really seek actively to avoid. And so my, one of my questions is, did you face any pushback from family or friends in your route to seeking treatment, the way you were seeking treatment, maybe declining some of the uh, recommended options? How was that navigating that with your family members and maybe some people who were older than you? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I think about the time that I was starting the White Dress Project and decided that I was going to share my story for the first, very first time. And uh, I didn't share this part, but um, when I finally got to a doctor who was willing to um, have surgery and treat my fibroids with a myomectomy, that physician during my first surgery uh, took out 27 fibroids. And I remember when I was starting the organization and wanted to share my story publicly, um, my sweet, sweet Jamaican mother said to me, honey, don't tell everybody you had 27 taken out. And I remember saying to her, like, mommy, like, why? I did. You know, <laughs> like, I don't get it. And, and, you know, it wasn't because she was embarrassed of me. It was what she was taught. And then ultimately what she taught me, right, which is 
as a woman, as a lady with grace, as a woman of sophistication, as a woman who is going to be a boss in the world, you don't, you don't talk about those issues, honey. You don't talk about issues below the belt. And so I think back to all the cultural taboos and the stigmas that are in, as a Black woman, I can speak to that as a Black woman who is of Caribbean descent, so I'm Jamaican, there is just that ideology that these are not things you talk about. You don't mention them, and you are a person who was born with a uterus, so this is your plight. This is what you have to go through. So therefore, it doesn't need to be discussed broadcasted exactly that what is this Instagram and what is this Twitter you're talking about? And that is not the way you do it. So I remember her, her apprehension and her trepidation when I was starting the organization. Obviously she wanted the best for me and she just didn't want anything to taint my image or what she perceived would taint my image. So so many times in our community, we hear women talking about, you know, my mother didn't say anything to me until I was being rolled into the the ER, right? And it's like, mommy, grandma, auntie, like, why y'all didn't say nothing? And once again, I think it's this these cultural taboos, these stigmas around women's health issues, our trepidation in talking about these issues publicly is kind of what's gotten us in this position and what's gotten us to the point that that we've so normalized these symptoms that we go around and we're like, girl, everybody have fibroids. And we have so trivialized it, but we are all on the bathroom floor in fetal position suffering. Suffering. Yes. Oh, that was perfect. And I, I wanted to allow you to speak to the nuances of generational conversations and how our mothers and foremothers taught us certain tips of behavior that were learned in a system that often mistreated them, that if they had the, you know, courage or the, I don't know, the gall to bring up their periods and complain, what would they have been met with? You know, would they have been treated differently, let go from their jobs, painted as, you know, a bad person, bad mother, bad caregiver, bad whatever, what opportunities would have been taken from them? And so really to understand it, we have to to really know that historical context and look at the landscape of their existence and what was happening at that time. And that helps to understand why we were taught these things. When I started my period, my mother taught me, I mean, it was like I was entering the secret service. She was like, this is what you do. Okay, you take this. And then the closing argument was like, no one should know you're on your period. And I was like, whoa, that's a big ass. But then as I started to really understand and unravel this, I said, why are we doing this? And then it made me want to ask the questions like, mommy, why did you teach me that? What happened to you? Why did you say that we had to put it in a trash bag and take it to the big trash can? Because no one could see they were on our period in a home with majority women. Why was that the case? And it made me wonder, when was she mocked for someone finding a soiled, you know, and really, really building grace. And so I say that to say the conversations require grace. They require understanding. They require context and they require our courage to make meaningful change. Um, so I, I really appreciate what you said there. That was beautiful. I want to pivot into our next session 
of our podcast, which is disparities in care. I want to welcome our expert guest, Dr. Veronica Gillespie-Bell. <laughs> Dr. Uh, Gillespie-Bell is a board-certified OBGYN and associate professor for Ostner Health in New Orleans. She is also the medical director for their Minimally Invasive Center for the Treatment of Fibroids and is an expert on heavy menstrual bleeding associated with fibroids. Hi, Dr. Veronica. Welcome. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here and lending your expertise to this conversation. Um, so I do want to, you know, kind of go back to uh, the disparities in care that black women face. Uh, Tanika shed light on her personal experience, but I do want to kind of step back and say, what do you know from a care uh, provider um, uh, viewpoint uh, when it comes to black women and just the, the disparities that they face when it comes to their care for uterine fibroids compared to white women, especially, and then why these disparities exist? You know, it is so unfortunate and um, so heartbreaking to hear Tanika's story and to know that she is not the only Black woman that has that experience. I see patient after patient that tell me that, that they have sought me out because they've been told a hysterectomy is their only option. And just to clarify, a hysterectomy is removal of the uterus. Usually that includes the cervix as well, plus or minus removal of the ovaries. These are women that have never had children who desire to have children, or they may just desire to keep their uterus because they want to keep their uterus and it is their right to keep their uterus, which is reason enough. But they've been told that a hysterectomy is their only option, which is mind blowing because there are so many options that are available now for treating uterine fibroids and treating the symptoms that are associated with fibroids. Definitely, there are more Black women that come into my practice that have been told that a, that a hysterectomy is their only option. We know that even when we adjust for a body mass index for this uterine size, all of those factors, we do see that Black women are less likely to be offered even a minimally invasive option, even if they choose hysterectomy. And so when we think about where, where and why we see those disparities, I always want to make it very, very clear when I'm discussing any issue that has to deal with health equity, that race is not a biological condition. It is a social construct. So there's nothing biologically different that, that for why we should have any health disparity as Black women. And so when I say it is a social construct, it is the social way or the social socialization or the way we have been socialized to think about black women. And some of it is how we tend we even think about ourselves. And you were kind of hitting on it, some of it at the in the in the other segment, Dr. Sharis. But one of those biases is that black women are loud and black women complain. And this is one of the archetypes that have been used to describe black women. And so what happens in the healthcare system, then the healthcare system does not listen when Black women say they have issues, they have problems, especially when, it, as, as Tanika was saying, especially when it comes to pain. But then we as Black women do not want to fulfill that stereotype of the quote unquote angry Black woman. And so we keep our voices quiet and we don't advocate for ourselves. We don't speak up. We don't say, hey, I know that there are other options. And so I think a lot of getting to places of equity are, for one, for providers, understanding these disparities, understanding how we are contributing to these disparities, understanding that we have biases and that these biases affect how we deliver care. And then as patients, understanding that we have a voice, 
that as patients, patients have a voice, your voice is important. I, I always, <laughs> it may seem silly, but I use this analogy. If I was going into a car dealership, I wouldn't walk into the car dealership and the, and the dealer say, you have to have this car, this color, and this these features. That's it. No, the dealer would offer me different options, tell me the risks, tell me the benefits, give me all these alternatives. And together we would decide which vehicle is going to be the, my vehicle. And healthcare is not any different. And so if you are not seeing a provider that is doing that for you as a patient, you have every right to seek out another provider. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. So, so glad because, you know, it's the fear of being mislabeled and being mistreated because of that mislabeling that keeps us quiet. And then when we do speak up, it's shown that we're more likely to be dismissed. We're more likely to have to see multiple healthcare providers. We are more likely to feel like our concerns are invalid. And so it's really a compounding of factors, you know, and so I love the, you know, the, the education and the empowerment, you know, the speak up piece, but there's certainly a systemic component. You've cared for many, many patients, especially as it relates to fibroids. What are some of the reasons that you see um, for black women waiting longer to seek treatment? I think for a lot of patients it's fear because they do think that a hysterectomy is going to be their only option. They think surgery is their only option and they don't want to undergo surgery. A lot of times they're told or they they know of surgical options that will require a very long time of being off of work and they don't have the time to be off for that length of time either because they're busy professionals or because they work in positions where they're hourly wage and they just cannot afford to be off for that amount of time. And so that's a very difficult choice. And so they're just unaware of all of the options that are available that may not re even require surgery. And so I think the fear of a hysterectomy itself or surgery itself often causes patients to not come in. But also, I see this in fibroid treatment, but also in the, the space that I am in, uh, in maternal health equity, that individuals are not wanting to interact with the healthcare system because they know of the disrespect that Black women experience in the healthcare system. And so we see this all the time in the maternal space. I think that's been much more documented in media, but it's it's true in the gynecology spaces as well. When you know that you're going to walk into a place and you're not going to be listened to, you know that you're not going to be valued, you know that you're not going to be heard. And we're talking about in a time when you are extremely vulnerable. I think the, all three of us have have had this similar experience about our periods and how we have been raised and it's supposed to be something very private. So for you to let your guard down with a, with a physician and to open, open up that part of your life, there's uh, some trepidation that comes along with that. And then to know there's a possibility you may interact with a provider that's not going to hear you or see you. All of those things and that fear that comes from that, I, all of those things are the things that my patients tell me are reasons that they have delayed time, uh, their care. I just wanted to add to what Dr. Veronica just mentioned. There's also this level of reverence that you have for your physician, you have for the people in the white coat that says that you shouldn't challenge anything they say. And, and trust me, I, I love my doctors. 
but I also know that I'm my best advocate and I know that I'm the CEO of my body. So I think there's sometimes a delay as well because you don't want to challenge what they've told you is your only option. So if hysterectomy is it, well, I might as well go <laughs> live life. And, you know, if myomectomy is it, then I don't have eight weeks right now to just chill at home because I don't have a job that can secure my wage. So I think that's what happens as well. And I think the way that physicians do a disservice to, to patients is that if they only speak to what they know, their line of expertise. So if you're not a minimally invasive gynecologist, then what we're hearing and what we're finding, and which has been my own personal experiences, that you're not going to recommend that particular thing. So then a hysterectomy is your only option because that's the only thing I can do, right? So there's no further conversation. So I think that ideology about the respect and the reverence that we have for our physicians, while it's admirable, I think there is a way to partner with your physician so that you have the best outcomes, right? Because I, I think women are delaying because whatever they heard, they don't want to do that. I'm glad you brought that up. And a lot of it is what we've heard. And it's not even just heard in modern times, what we've heard historically. You know, there's a lot of, especially as it relates to reproductive health, there are crimes against Black women's bodies. There are things like forced sterilization and other aspects that we know have taken place. There is a lot of weight there. Uh, historically, certainly, and just culturally, um, it's a big deal. And I think that carries into some of the hesitations that we have when it comes to research, right? So research is what informs a lot of our decision-making in the medical space. We always say evidence-based medicine. That's the hope. But what does the evidence show? And sometimes we say, hey, but Black women weren't adequately represented in that study, right? But there's also some hesitation when it comes to being a part of these research studies. Can you speak to that, Dr. Veronica? Absolutely. I think it's well documented how the bodies of, uh, of Black individuals, both men, women, have been misused for science. And so anytime there is research being done, I think it is understandable that uh, Black individuals, we will always question, well, what is this research really about? What are you really going to do? If we question, if we question at all, a lot of times we just say, you know what, <laughs> I don't want to have any part of that. I, I, I know what's happened in the past. I don't want any part of that. Uh, and, and of course, I'm generalizing as a whole. Understandably, we have fear about participating in studies. And then we don't always know then when the data comes out, what does it mean for us as Black individuals because we were not a part of the study? Either one, because we chose to not participate because of this historical context, or because there was no effort to include us in the clinical trials. That's, that also happens. But we are really being damaged from history and now future because of what's happened in the past. Yes, very, very good point. I'm so glad you you spoke to that. I want to transition into session three, which is basically how can we solve this problem? You know, what are some of the solutions? So there are some efforts being done to overcome disparities in uterine fibroid care. And Tanika, because I'm familiar with your work, <laughs> I do believe that you could speak to some of the things that are 
occurring uh, as relates to black women in research and even just some uh, policy changes uh, to improve disparities in uterine fibroid care. Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I There are, you know, we've, we've spoken about where we're coming from, where we need to go. And I'm happy to talk about the progress that we have made, especially in uh, legislation. Our organization, I, I'm very proud of the fact that we are the ones, well, I wrote <laughs> the legislation um, to declare July as Fibroid Awareness Month. And while some may deem it as ceremonious. It's very important to our community because what it does, it says that we have a particular time during the year where we can raise our voices around our lived experiences. And I always say lived experiences is the data that you need that goes along with the science, especially something like uterine fibroids, where there's so many variations in how someone can experience fibroids, right? So I'm happy about the progress that's been done on in Capitol, on Capitol Hill regarding uterine fibroids and the introduction of bills that have been made outside of July being declared as Uterine Fibroid Awareness Month. But we have the Stephanie Tubbs-Jones Uterine Fibroid Research and Education Act. And Stephanie Tubbs-Jones was a former uh, congresswoman from Ohio. She passed some years ago. But 20 years ago, she introduced this legislation talking about her own personal experience with uterine fibroids and just really advocating for why NIH and our additional uh, government agencies needed to do more around this and as it pertains to women's reproductive health. So we have introduced that, I shouldn't say we, <laughs> but we I've been on the groups and championing this. It has been introduced by um, Congresswoman Yvette Clark from New York. Uh, on the Senate side, uh, Senator Cory Booker uh, and Senator Capito. So we have gotten some support for it, but the bill has not been passed. So there's still a lot of work to do. And just a quick synopsis of what uh, the bill outlines. It outlines giving $150 million over the next uh, five years uh, for uterine fibroid research to understand some of these uh, very things that we've been talking about, uh, disparities, Where's the research? Uh, why are Black women disproportionately impacted by fibroids, especially as Dr. Veronica spoke about earlier, that there's there's no uh, biological component per se. So it addresses all of those things. And when you think of $150 million to regular earning people like us, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's it's really not compared to the way funding is divvied out for other disease states. So I, I'm proud of it and I'm proud of what we've been able to do to introduce it and the support that we've given our members of Congress who have introduced it, but there's still a long way to go. I want to add that having conversations like this and partnering with companies and organizations that find these uh, conversations necessary and these stories necessary uh, tip my hat, chef's kiss, all of the things, because those are the allies that are needed to keep these conversations going. So that was a long way of saying <laughs> we're doing stuff, but we, we 
things are definitely happening and i'm i'm very proud of our legislators who have who have decided to share their personal stories lauren uh, congresswoman lauren underwood is another person who has shared her public story with uterine fibroids so i want to applaud those legislators who have done that because Obviously, in the political climate that we're living in, um, sometimes it's hard for these conversations to break through. But it's important to know that it impacts so many people, and therefore the conversation has to continue. I, I love how you how you stated that, and I appreciate the synopsis, specifically highlighting the money that is planned to go towards research, which makes me want to circle back to that. You know. There's so much um, to be said about the importance of educating around research, the inclusive nature of research and why that is important. We do have some people doing great work. Um, We were able to be uh, at an event with Dr. Erica Marsh, who does great work as a physician researcher uh, in the area of fibroids. And she specifically did a study that looked at how do black women make choices around their care when they're offered minimally invasive options uh, and all the options? And one of the things she said was when you're given when you're given an opportunity to order, you want to order from the whole menu. And what her research found was that black women were much more likely to choose minimally invasive options when given the choice. And that makes me want to kind of pivot to, you know, it's important that we have that research to show this is where, where the work needs to happen. This is an issue, not just with us, but with the healthcare system. And so we're not just pushing patient awareness, which is great. There has to be a focus on increasing awareness among healthcare providers, especially as it relates to how healthcare providers manage Black women differently and how they may or may not offer these these options. And Dr. Um, Veronica, I do want to give you an option, an opportunity to speak there, because I know that you had the minimally invasive <laughs> uh, portion of this care. And so I, I know that you have some insight. Yeah, I will say that the awareness is happening all the way around. You know, we did speak a, a lot about what we have seen our patients experience with, with physicians. But I will say that in the time that I've been in practice, I've been in practice now for 15 years, that 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 the way that providers that I am seeing are counseling patients is starting to change. Again, you know, I primarily uh, treat patients that have uh, fibroids. And as many patients seek me out, I have doctors that refer to me. To to your point, Tanika, a lot of times if, if doctors only do hysterectomies, that may be what they offer patients. But what I'm starting to see is that the doctors will say, this is what I can do for you, but let me refer you to Dr. Gillespie because she does other, she she can offer you some other options from, from a surgical standpoint that, that are minimally invasive options. And so I'm very appreciative that those doctors are doing that, that they are trusting me with their patients. But I am starting to, to see that as new options become available, that there are doctors that that's just not what they do, but they are starting to say, hey, I don't know much about this about this option, but I know somebody that does. And so I think that's that's very, very, very important. I think it's also something that for through our residency programs, you don't have to be minimally uh, invasively trained in fellowship to be able to do these options. You definitely don't have to be minimally invasively trained to know about the options. So I do think we need to do more in our residency programs around educating uh, around the different options for treating fibroids. It is the thing that made me go into OBGYN. Um, 
as a, a junior in college. And a lot of the things that you were saying, Tanika, resonated with me as a junior in college. My mom was diagnosed with fibroids. I didn't know what that what that was. I certainly was not going to ask her about it because that was not something that you talk about. She just told me she was having a hysterectomy because of fibroids. I knew nothing about fibroids, didn't know what they were, started um, doing my own research, realized there were no options available other than a hysterectomy. So I decided that was it. What I focused on are making sure that women have treatment options. And I've put it out there to my medical community that that is what I'm, that is my goal. Yes, yes. And that's, that's so important because, you know, the change needs to be full circle. It needs to be all the way around. It needs to include everyone from people who have a uterus to people who love those people with a uterus. And I do think that, you know, highlighting these issues with implicit bias, highlighting the fact that not every doctor provides the same, you know, options or opportunities, that's important. And I do think it would build trust. It would build trust for me if someone I'm going to says, you know what, there's someone who does this better and I want to send you to them. There's someone who offers what you're looking for. Let me send you there. That to me is a trust building practice. This isn't a failure if I can't fix everything. It's more so guiding that patient to the right person who can. Yes. Any parting words, Tanika and Dr. Veronica? Just to add to your last point, I think, you know, Dr. Sharis and Dr. Veronica, you two obviously are excellent physicians. It's it's apparent that the patients that come in contact with you, that you care about them deeply. And I, I wish that the people that I meet in our community had the opportunity to meet uh, physicians that have the level of empathy and care that you two have. But unfortunately, that's not happening a lot. So I would ask as a patient advocate that because both of you have the platform that you have to share with your fellow physicians, spread that message that if I don't do it, it's okay to refer. Offering the education and referring is also something that I think needs to be wrapped up in there or, or be reminded of because it's troubling to me that we're just seeing so many people in our community and knowing that I experienced it myself, that aren't getting that level of care and not getting that level of empathy. Yes. Thank you, Tanika. Dr. Veronica? Yeah, I think for me, for the physicians um, that are on the call, that are on the podcast and are listening to the podcast, just understand that your patients want to have transparency. They want to participate in shared decision-making and remember that any relationship is founded in trust. And so as part of trust, making sure that you are listening to your patients and truly listening, listening to understand what are their symptoms, what are their goals of treatment and making sure that you offer them, first of all, discuss all the options but make sure that you're together choosing an option that centers that patient and centers their desires and understand it's okay. We cannot be jack of all trades. If the patient desires an option that you do not perform or you do not have access to, it's okay to transfer that patient because remember patients need to be informed consumers and we have to respect their decisions and choices. Mm, that's so beautiful. Patient centered care. That's the goal. 
Um, I do want to thank you both, Dr. Veronica and Tanika, for your candor, for your honesty, um, for your expertise. Uh, this has been a beautifully vibrant conversation. You know, it's sometimes hard to talk about disparities. It can be very triggering emotionally. It can make you think of all the people in your families who were mistreated by care providers or had not so great experiences uh, with their health care. But I'm hopeful that there's a, a tiny seed of, of, of power and empowerment uh, that we may have planted uh, in, in the hearts and minds of our listeners. It says there can be change. Uh, you have to kind of know where your role is as a change maker, but we all have uh, the ability to create change. Uh, and with all of those combined efforts, hopefully these disparities uh, will actually be a thing of the past uh, in our lifetime. That would be a beautiful thing. So I do want to also thank Pfizer and Sumitomo Pharma America for sponsoring this discussion and giving us this platform to have this much needed conversation. As you stated, Tanika, uh, it is partnerships like these and platforms like these that really keep the conversation at the forefront of people's minds so that we can move the needle and push the conversation forward. And that's it. That's it from Tales from the Uterus. I'm Dr. Shars Chambers. Thank you so much for listening.